Welcome to Story Geometry, the podcast plotting insights on the craft and community of writing and storytelling from leading published authors of our day, all with a razor sharp number two pencil. I'm your host, screenwriter, aspiring novelist, Ben Hess, and this is episode three, The Deep End. My partner in literary exploration throughout all of season one, Writing by Writers, founded by award-winning teacher and writer Pam Houston and nonprofit executive Karen Nelson. They'd love to have you stop by and explore their 2016 workshops and adventures. Visit writingxwriters.org and reserve a spot today. So it's mid-September now, which historically signifies a change in season from summer to fall and the beginning of another school year. But in recent times, the 11th casts a haunting shadow on the calendar. When 9-11 happened, this firm, Cantor Fitzgerald, lost 658 members, you know, people who had worked there, of this, this company of 1,000 people. And it was sort of the epicenter of the tragedy. This is Tom Barbash, author of the award-winning collection, Stay Up With Me, the novel, The Last Good Chance, and the New York Times bestseller, On Top of the World, Cantor Fitzgerald, Howard Litnick, and 9-11, a story of loss and renewal. Tom was thrown into the literary deep end days after 9-11 while navigating personal grief and loss. The chairman, Howard Lutnick of Kinner Fitzgerald, the sort of the New York Stock Exchange for Bonds, he was on my tennis team and a, and a friend of mine, actually knew him before college uh, from tennis tournaments. I was away traveling in Spain and he was on television crying. He was the sort of face of the tragedy. Kinner Fitzgerald sort of symbolizes the devastation of the terrorist attack. We have to make our company be able to take care of my 700 families. Originally, we were going to write something together, and then he was too caught up in saving the company and doing whatever he needed to do, sort of work around the clock, just kind of staying afloat. And I ended up with this incredible responsibility of writing the story about grief, a story about this company trying to reboot within 48 hours, you know, to stay viable, and then the media crush around them, which which was a sort of story in which they got vilified and then sort of pulled out of that. And it was quite surreal and with a short deadline. So I was sort of reporting around the clock, writing around the clock, and I lost four friends in the tragedy and was going to funerals. So I was, I was sort of being a friend and being a writer secondarily, and then I had to really sort of kick it in. While Tom grappled with the daunting task of feverishly reporting and writing a personal account of the worst terrorist attack ever on American soil, naturalist and creative nonfiction writer Gary Ferguson used writing to navigate the grief of losing his wife Jane in a canoeing accident. The result is his memoir, The Carry Home, Lessons from the American Wilderness. We chatted on a spring morning in stunning Boulder, Colorado. You write so eloquently about your grief and, and what you went through at what stage of the process did you realize you were going to write? Or were you writing pieces of this all along the journey? Well, the first, I'd say almost two years after the accident, I, I journaled. And that was really a self-indulgent exercise to pour out onto the page all the emotional upheaval sure. that was going on. The sadness, the sense of betrayal, all of that came down in journal fashion. After a couple of years, I asked myself the question quite blatantly and literally, is this a story? The story of how nature can inform people's lives and actually inform the difficult process of healing after a major loss. Is that a story that other people would benefit from? Is it a story that Jane would want to tell? And I decided it was. At that point, then there comes a great shift when you're telling yeah. for public consumption. 
Was there any kind of um, issue about publication, moving from idea to actual book? Normally, I would run out an idea with my agent ahead of time to see if she thought it was marketable. This was not that way. I was going to write this book no matter what. And so I spent the next six years writing the book, assuming that ultimately it would see publication because it would draw out something that was worthwhile. And as difficult as it was, it pushed me in a way from a craft perspective alone, not only emotionally, but it pushed me in a craft perspective way that I think I'm going to lean on and use for every book that follows. While Gary painstakingly crafted his memoir, Tom was under very different constraints. It's a terrible word for it, given what happened on 9-11, but they, in the business, they call it a crash book, meaning you, you do it you know, quickly. Feeling the pressure of writing about this massive event, Tom leaned on his training as a journalist to craft story, just as Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and Ernest Hemingway had done years before. I came in having a background as a journalist, but also being a novelist, and that helped me a lot. I jumped right into page 175 of a pretty sad, dramatic novel. There were lots of moving pieces in the same way I had just moved from a, from a novel with lots of moving pieces, but I could see it. Tom's referring to his novel, The Last Good Chance, that he had finished in August 2001, which had prompted his celebratory trip to Spain. But with On Top of the World, I could see my friend as a character. Mm. I could see, you know, with his interesting past, his parents who died in high school in his freshman year of college, how he dealt with tragedy over life. You know, there were all these sorts of things I could I could see the story in. So I, I just tried to power on and, and make as, as good a book as I could. Writing by Writers co-founder and award-winning writer and teacher Pam Houston has also written extensively for magazines and newspapers, including dozens for the New York Times. She uses keen personal observation as the foundation of her articles, short stories, and books. All my books have been largely autobiographical. It's just what I do. It's the way that I make work. I go out in the world and I pay really strict attention and I write down the things that I notice and then I combine them and recombine them and those turn into my stories and my novels. That's how it's always been. We chatted more about Pam's writing, teaching, and her novel Contents May Have Shifted in her Davis, California home. There is almost always a character at the center of the work who resembles me a lot. That's just how it happens. And so when I was writing contents, which I understood to be a kind of collage of all these little glimmering objects I had picked up from moving through the world for a period of years and going to lots of different countries and trying to do sort of an investigation of the ways different people keep faith kind of. I didn't know whether my publisher would want to call it a novel or a memoir. There's a certain amount of pressure for us all to write memoirs here in this moment of memoir love, (laughs) Uh, this literary moment where memoirs are so popular. Pausing for a brief side note, I just heard an excellent chat on writing memoirs specifically. Terry Gross on NPR's Fresh Air interviewed Mary Carr, whose memoirs include The Liars Club, Cherry, and Lit. I'll have a link to that interview in our show notes. Here's more from Pam. But on the other hand, my publisher knows that I tend to shape stories. And in that shaping, they start to not resemble exactly what really happened. And so usually my books are called fiction. So I really didn't know. I wrote the whole book without knowing what we would call it, whether we would call it a memoir or a novel. And in the end, we decided to call it a novel more because of the climate that the book was born into than anything else. 
I find this terrifying and daunting. Beyond being thrown into the deep end of a pool, this strikes me as a one-mile open water swim with no training. I have found that with my attempts at longer-form prose, I need more guidance, more direction. Pam contributed an essay, Corn Maze, to Jill Talbot's book, Meta Writings, Toward a Theory of Nonfiction. And I asked Pam about her perspective on these rigid lines of genre, of fiction versus nonfiction. My belief system on the subject is what Corn Maze is about, and that's that, you know, we are in this lifelong unrequited love affair with language because of its unrequited nature, because it won't just sit still and mean for us. And meaning is always shifting. Meaning occurs at the junction of code and context. We know that, the linguist taught us that. So even if I write a sentence right now, it's gonna mean something different in an hour, and it's gonna mean something different in five years, and it might be unintelligible in a hundred years. So the idea that we can make language represent reality in any kind of a complete or consistent way just is simply not true. If something really funny happens on the way home, by the time you get home and tell your loved ones about it, it's already better. Like you've already made it better and everybody knows that. And the same thing is happening for a writer when a writer's crafting words, if not more so. That is not to say we just throw the baby out with the bathwater. Like that's not to say, oh, well, we shouldn't try or there aren't certain genres in which we should actually try you know if 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 i'm writing a travel piece about italy i should try to represent italy as accurately as i can because someone's going to decide whether they want to go to italy or not however to pretend as some people are doing right now that it's one way or the other that language can absolutely represent reality and if it didn't for you in a particular instant you lied uh, that's that's much too simplified for me. But now you are working on a memoir and a, and a self-proclaimed memoir. Like early in the process, you you, right. you know that's what you're doing or that's that's the intent. So if, I don't know, 80 to 85% of the previous work has been autobiographical, then if, in, in writing th this project, where does the other 15 to 20% originate from? Well, that's an interesting question. And I, you know, I would be able to say more about that when I have something closer to a, a, a solid draft. But so far, I'm honestly seeing how much I can stick to what really happened. Like I'm doing it as a as an intellectual exercise in a certain way or, you know, an emotional exercise, uh, both. I'm doing it as a writing exercise, you know, given all this stuff I've said and given corn maze and given how I have joked and been serious about all this through the years, I thought, well, what if I really tried? What if I really tried to make language represent reality? Like, what if I didn't think it was okay to shape the truth in ways I've had before? And so far, I think I have, although I, I wouldn't want anybody to hold me to that exactly. You know, I'd have to really go look at the manuscript. But I've been, I've been sort of dutiful about trying to the best of my knowledge get everything exactly right just to see what would happen if I did because I've never tried that before mm -hmm. and I thought it might be interesting to see what happened and if I don't know something for sure I say it right in the text mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. or I say maybe it was like this maybe it was like this ironically I'm trying to do this like right at the moment where my memory is completely failing you know because of, I'm 53 so that's also sort of funny <laughs> when I could have remembered I didn't but we'll see how it goes 
my mind buzzing around thoughts of language's limitations. I spoke with Writing by Writers faculty Josh Weil, author of the New York Times Editor's Choice novel The Great Glass Sea, and collection of novellas, The New Valley, which was the Sue Kaufman Prize for First Fiction from the American Academy of Arts and Letters. We chatted in Tamales Bay, north of San Francisco, as a small plane buzzed overhead. You dedicate The Great Glass Sea to your brother, and the story features this incredible, complex, fraternal love between two brothers. And I'm wondering, as an only child, and as a parent of two, I, I'm, I'm baffled by siblings, but also intrigued by siblings. And what is it about family for you that uh, helps inform your writing? Uh, my family is very important to me. My brother, in particular, has been very important to me all of my life. I mean, I write a lot about uh, father-son relationships as well, and about romantic relationships as well. My brother... And he's five years older than I am. In the novel, they're twins. Like most everything that I write, it comes from a kernel of something in my life. But then by the time it reaches the published page, it's, it's so wildly different. So luckily he understands that because the brother, <laughs> it's, a, it's a dark and difficult look at, at fraternal relationships. My brother is five years older than I, than I am. And my parents got divorced when I was five. And he, in some ways, took on the role of a father figure, mm -hmm. although my dad is a great dad um, and I have a great relationship with him. He wasn't around on the day-to-day -day basis mm -hmm. when I was growing up. Yeah. So my brother took that, that role on a little bit. And then we, that just morphed into a close friendship as we got older. And there was a point in both of our lives when we were the most important person in each other's life. Mm -hmm. And what I wanted to deal with in that book was, for me, a very painful and difficult growth process and necessary process, part of being an adult, was shifting from that young adult slash childhood relationship with my brother into one that included all the complexities of wives and children and other people when all of a sudden you're not the most important person in your sibling's life, as it should be. You know, it would be a problem if you kind of were. Similar to Josh, family is a strong influence in Alan Heathcock's fiction specifically that rite of passage from the somewhat carefree adult days to the murky unknowns of parenting. Alan teaches in the Boise State MFA Creative Writing Program, and his recent collection of short stories, Volt, was a best book selection from a literary who's who, GQ, Publishers Weekly, and Salon. Your preoccupations as a human being change when you become a parent because you become aware of the world that your children are walking around in. Um, and it's a constant thing, a constant uh, interrogation of the world. I'm thinking about today and what's happening today with my children in the street we live in. But then I think about the, the world at large. That couples with the fact that as you get older, you begin to understand that the world is completely made by people. I mean, we have weather and things like that too, but in terms of how the world is run and what gets made and how we feel about ourselves, the stories that are told. It's, it's all people and it's all stories. Yes, stories have this unique power to unite, to bond us. And a recognition that it's my job to create the world that I want for my children and to also teach them that it's their world and it's their responsibility uh, to put their story into the world as well. And, in, and I don't mean that in any metaphysical way, I mean that in an, an actual literal way. Right. Uh, that the, the world is designed, you know, from religion to politics to commerce, on around, all of it is determined by stories. So my stories are completely informed by the fact that I have uh, three children, 
who I love dearly, and I I want the world to represent itself in a, in a way where they can go into it with uh, compassion and, and empathy uh, and give love, feel love. And I know that sounds corny, but I mean it. These are just meant to be stream of consciousness, like one or two word answers. What writer, dead or alive, would you most like to have a meal with? Cormac McCarthy. Here's Gary Ferguson. John Steinbeck. And Josh Weil. <laughs> what writer, dead or alive, would I like to have a meal with? Probably W.G. Seabold. Probably. And Tom Barbash. Oh, that's a good, good one. I suppose Chekhov, whose life is so varied and amazing and was such a beautiful human being. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd have a lot to say to him, I think. Pam Houston. I'm not good at quick. That seems like such an important question. <laughs> if it was alive, it would be Alice Munro. And if it were dead, it would be Eudora Welty. And which writer, dead or alive, would you like to have a meal with? Let us know at facebook.com slash storygeometry. Use the hashtag storygeo, and I'm at Ben Hess on Twitter. Or via email, hello at storygeometry.org. That does it for episode three, The Deep End. And a special thank you to Tom Barbash, Gary Ferguson, Alan Heathcock, and Josh Weil on sharing their perspectives on the craft and community of writing. I, Ben Hess, produced and edited the episode and wholeheartedly approve and endorse all the comments herein. Our theme music is from the lovely Brit, Mark Hodgkin, markhodgkin.com, and our logo is designed by Thatcher Warwick Hess. As always, thanks to Writing by Writers, that's writingxwriters.org, where you can explore a myriad of workshop opportunities and adventures to further your own craft. We've just launched Story Geometry. Please go to iTunes, subscribe, review, and rate. And if you're standing, you may want to sit down. Episode four is going to give a taste on the business side of writing, featuring editor Jay Schaefer, agent Gordon Warnock, and award-winning writers Tom Barbash, Pam Houston, and Josh Weil. Until then, take a leap into the literary waters and yell story geometry on your way in. Thanks for listening.